Welcome back to another episode of Sharing Air, the podcast where we connect across our disciplinary and physical islands to re-examine our world, our communities, and ourselves in the era of COVID-19. I'm Andrew Vosco, Associate Provost and Director of the Transdisciplinary Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University. And I'm Lorianne Farrell, the Dean of the School of Arts and Humanities at CGU. Hey, so Andrew. Lorianne, last... Yeah, it's a long time, no chat. Yeah, really? Uh, I, I, it's always fun to talk to you while I'm staring into uh, a corner of my living room because it makes me envision what Lorianne might look like if I were to be gesticulating in person in, in her presence. I'm so glad that you said that, but made sure that for future generations who hear this podcast, which will be you know immemorial, w- you know would wonder what I would be doing standing in the corner of your living room uh, on a regular basis. So. <laughs> it's 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 practice. It's, it's how we get good at podcasting. This is the training. That's right. We hide from uh, each other, and then we, and then we send each other to the corner. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, this is how Morse code first began. Uh, we just had, uh, and then a Campbell soup can and some string. And now we've moved on to uh, this this kind of uh, fully immersive method of, of getting into character for the podcast. Except as usual, and I always feel it's important to to tell the, you know, so that the, the sharing air podcast community, um, please understand that Andy and I cannot see each other. Uh, which I'm not actually in the corner of his living room. Um, and he's not even in the corner of my screen. And I think this is important because it makes a usual rude ha- habit of mine, which is to interrupt people, which I do even when I can see them, seem a little bit more normal. So and he's very patient. Um, and when I interrupt him, just remember, it's not because I'm rude. It's because I can't see him. No, and and I think it's great because Lorianne is is able to give me time all the all, all sta- after every statement so that I I can formulate some kind of thought to what it is I'm trying to put together. So it actually works really well for me. I, I, if Lorianne's happy with it, I'm happy with it. So how are you? I mean, okay. So we've had a week to think about um, our 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 wonderful podcast last week, which was I thought a ton of fun um, and went all over the place, which is probably a typical and, and actually rather apt way of thinking about our theme, which was parachutes, which I'm still kind of wondering, what the heck were we doing thinking about that as our trope, although it worked really, really well. It did. And I was really timely because now we are starting to see the, the mental health tolls. Uh, there were stories all over CNN. There was the, the tragic case of the, the physician who took their life last week. Oh, yeah. Um, of of the mental health tolls that this is starting to take. And uh, sometimes I think metaphor is the most powerful way that we can communicate with each other because uh, it captures the complexity of a situation and being able to understand our situation in terms of a metaphor or even playing with it, like the idea of a parachute and our, and our social connections as being part of this fabric that makes up uh, the... The garment, the the blanket that it, that is going to help us uh, kind of find our way through the turbulence. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense for me to understand as we unpacked what that metaphor and we unpacked the parachute. Well, we sure did. We unpacked it and and to it to until we practically destroyed it, which is what everyone we did. does to a good metaphor. But I I think one of the places where we sort of went, but but. Which has been, which has remained on my mind, was actually the kind of seemingly um, fragile, but actually quite strong uh, uh, nature of, of parachute silk, 
uh, that that in in a way mm. this thing which is gossamer thin, which it must be because it was actually weighed anything, it just hits you in the head and you'd both fall down in the you know like at plunge onto the ground. So it's this it's this slenderly made, very 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 light, um, incredibly strong uh, substance, and and I think that's actually the way to think about. Um, our hopes and dreams for what we might call the human psyche in these days, right? I'm, you know, that, that as fragile as it may look, you know, with, you know, under pressure, under the need to actually to hold us up and, and to cushion our landing as best it can, um, that we find it's, it's great strength. Um, so that was, it, it worked really well. And, and it was, it was actually, it really, it really stuck with me. And I want to thank you because that was actually your idea as, as these metaphors, tend to be, um, which I think is, is good because I'm the, I'm the humanist here. Um, and, and I don't want to think of metaphors. Um, <laughs> I'll leave it to someone else. Um, my job is to actually talk about other people's metaphors, right? Um, you're actually a humanist uh, too though, okay. Andy. So what did I just do? Um, I just, I just, I just misrepresented you. That's okay. I'm, I'm much more of the scientist on that divide, which is good because this is where our conversation is going to be going today. Well, that's good too, because, you know, there's nobody less of a scientist than I am. So it's good that you're more of a scientist, but, <laughs> but you, but you bring, you bring a humanist sensibility to bear on things. And one of the things that I think is like, I feel like we should have a, a kind of a, 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 a very scripted or potted way of doing this little kind of section, but I, I want to always be able to say to you, and Andy, what did you read in the news this week? Well, I, you know, with the news this week, we can see all around that everyone's getting kind of restless. And the news is reflecting that. And it's turning to two different conversations. One conversation is, okay, we're restless. So how is this, how is this going to look moving forward? And how, can I, and how can I be angry about it? So on the, how to be angry about <laughs> it, we've seen the protests. Uh, we've seen people defying orders. We, we've we've seen the the kind of self righteous, um, but you know I, I'm living, but I'm not really living kind of arguments, and I think that there's there's a conversation to be had to hear a little bit more about this the discomfort because it, it is unifying. We're all kind of uncomfortable. Some of us are are facing more challenges than others, certainly. Um, but I'm I'm interested in the other side of, of what does the moving forward look more, and and that yeah. is turning to science. And it's turning to science in a way that I think Donna Haraway once called techno-salvation. It's that everything will be resolved after we use technology um, to make it all better. And it's a that criticism of sustainability. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's a little, it's a like little apocalyptic the the world kind of thing. You know, it's, it's a common argument you can actually see played out in, did you ever, I don't know if you ever saw or read the graphic novel, The Watchmen? No, but you may be the 949th person to tell me that I need to. So something tells me I know what I'll be getting on Amazon to ask for later today. You do need to. And uh, the, the premise of it is who watches The Watchmen? Who will watch The Watchmen? And The Watchmen are a bunch of superheroes. And what happens when you give superheroes the agency over your life? And in a similar way with techno salvation, it's the same idea. Who gives science and technology uh, the agency over our lives? And it's, you know, my, my eyebrow raise never comes with the, the importance of science and technology and the potential and the huge benefit we get from it every single day. Uh, I mean, I didn't become a scientist because I hated science. 
But at the same time, there's there's a line that we we tread dangerously close to and sometimes outright cross. And I and there were echoes of that crossing that were going on this week in the news. And so um, one of those was this encouraging message from findings from a clinical trial with Gilead Pharmaceuticals. They had created this general antiviral drug that they created for treating Ebola virus called remdesivir. And it hadn't been used for Ebola because they were able to contain it. And so there were there was no immediate need to manufacture it. But because it's what we call kind of off-the-shelf technology, you don't have to go through the phase one trials of determining its patient safety in a general population or the phase two trials um, to see if it works for basic treatments in small groups, you can kind of flash forward to a phase three trial where you're giving the drug versus a placebo. And here, this is really the gold standard that we use in biomedical science to see um, when a drug is effective. It's tested against a placebo. So they found in this that it was better than a placebo for reducing hospital times for like three or four days, and it reduced the mortality rate by... Um, small margin, uh, but wait a minute, percent, like two. Wait a percent. minute, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't read this article, or if I, I if I did, I didn't read it as carefully and as 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 intelligently as you. But or my question would be, why would this work? <laughs> you know, this is. I mean, Ebola wasn't a coronavirus, was it? Or am I just forgetting? There's a huge amount of diversity in all viruses. This was not created specifically to treat coronavirus. It's like the hydrochloroquine is was really made for malaria. Um, but there are mechanisms that these different viruses act in a cell that they try to find in common and then choose something off the shelf that might resemble that and then go with it and see what happens in a clinical trial. Got it. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like, this, this can be like off the rack clothing as opposed to going to the tailor exactly to have something, you know, so it's like me buying a pair of off the, off the rack, big and tall capri pants to wear as my shorts. You know, it's, it wasn't intended for me, but because I'm a short person. No, and not only that, it was, that wasn't intended for my mind to think about. I don't want to think about you doing that. Don't do that. Yeah, but, but it's like it wasn't intended for that, but it works as that. And, <laughs> and that's how these trials are working right now. In our, and, you know, at the same time, we're, we're, there are reports coming out of new drugs that are going to have to start at the very beginning and go through the entirety of the process, right. which is a long, painstaking process that over time we've developed to be as ethical as we believe possible and fair and safe as possible. And because we're in a state of emergency on all of this, um, this drug, remdesivir, is about to be, or it has been already, there's talk of it at least, that the FDA is going to green light this for use immediately. And this, this, it's important and it's interesting. It's, it's important in that uh, it's better than what we've got. And this could now be the gold standard against which other drugs are tried. So in terms of efficacy for other drugs, and it also, yeah, I mean, it's it, it stopped. It, I was just thinking that it, like, to go back to what's been interesting about watching the news, we are now, as we talked about last week, we're in this gray area, right? We're in this gray area where we're, you know, the need to actually get out of the house, the need to go back to some version of of life as it was before COVID, um, that with states cautiously opening up or not so cautiously opening up. Um, part of one of you know one of those kind of determinants has been um, we must have a, a vaccine, right? And this mm-hmm. actually allows, for, I think this both allows for hope, um, but it also allows for perhaps unmanageable hope, 
right? The idea that we might be, you know, th- that this might work for everything. Because to my mind, this is like any kind of broad spectrum antibiotic. It doesn't mean that it, it will work on every kind right. of, of infection. That's right. There are two important things with this. One is that it's just a very small tick. And the way it's being presented in the news is that this is hope. Um, and while that's true, you might save you know, maybe a thousand, maybe a hundred thousand more lives with the total numbers because of this, which would be great. And that is really important. Um, But more importantly, when they're doing clinical trials of future drugs, they don't necessarily have to do the drug against a placebo. They can do the drug against remdesivir. And so instead of giving someone's option for survival, the random chance versus drug, now they can do it against a drug that we know works to a certain extent versus a trial drug. And that is a really important difference. Right. So they won't have to use the placebo at all. That's that also, right. you know, the, the idea that we're already to that place, it, you know, that reminds me of, you know, we're in this condition now where we're actually are imagining what comes next. It, it's slightly mm-hmm. better than we were a couple of weeks ago, even if maybe no more accurately. And the news story that actually, that to me, you know, sort of encapsulates that it's almost as if we now get to, to start to be retrospective, right, about where we were. And the powerful news story for me this week was um, a, a piece in the New York Times that said, um, we've not had any kind of national mourning. We have not, and mm. that's mourning with a U. Um, we, we, haven't acknowledged, we haven't had a moment of silence for the, the people who have died. We do not have um, a national leadership that actually speaks to that grief. Um, you know, and when you think of, of the, 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 the ways over the years that, that, that people in national leadership, like, pre, the, like the president, will speak to things like, you know, these like horrific school shootings or, you know, the idea that, that, that we actually require a kind of national assessment of, of, of what we've lost. I think sometimes you, you don't actually start making that assessment. I'm, I'm not surprised at all that that piece didn't come out into the paper until the last couple of days, because when you're in the middle of something and you don't see it, any kind of change, if you don't see any sort of, of even mild transformation, you don't have the luxury of, of retrospect. And here we have this really interesting kind of juxtaposition. We're talking about death and mourning. And if you ask me what death and mourning looked like, excuse me, not death and mourning, death and salvation, what mm-hmm. those things look like together uh, six months ago, I would imagine more of this kind of humanistic way of imagining or different traditions and how we celebrate those things. Um, but here we're talking about death without an act of actually ritualizing it and salvation under the uh, under the influence of technology and science. Yes. And so we really, we really pivoted some of these things that are really essential to every culture, every religion, everything that's been so important to us has taken on very, very different forms in the era of COVID. And, you know, when we, when we talk, especially in these conversations we've been having lately, I mean, I find myself itching to get back into the classroom. Um, and, and, and it's because actually a lot of things that I work on that are from, you know, from hundreds of years ago, feels so, and relevance, not the word I'm looking for, but, and, and, and certainly not prescient, but more, um, a lot of the, a, a lot of the writers that, uh, that we that we, um, that we think of as characterizing the golden age for, of, of the, of English Renaissance literature, um, we think of them as, um, expressing the human condition in a way that points towards the modern. And I think, 
for example, I can't imagine what it will be like to sit down and talk about, say, the themes of of Shakespeare's King Lear after after this event, or in the in the midst of this event, or in the second or third kind of iteration of what COVID will do to our communities and to our families and to um, and to those who are older in the, in 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 our society. Um, you and I ended up, um, and and we, you know this was extraordinary since you and I agree on everything and never, never, never disagree on anything to find that we, <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, we are in perfect lockstep with each other and we found ourselves in this, in discussing what we might talk about today, you know, with a completely different uh, perspective on one single play, a one, a one, one act play, in fact. Right. And, and, and it's a play about a 17th century playwright, John Donne. And the play is a modern play by Margaret Edson called Wit uh, from the 1990s. Um, and and you um, you introduced it because it the, its pr- presentation of science and medicine made you um, uh, gave you pause and made you a little bit angry. Am I am I remembering yes. this possibly? You know, you're 100 um, percent right. And and I think it's so it was completely serendipitous that um, I I had no idea it was about John Donne to be completely honest with you. I was not thinking about that. And then I'm talking to you about it. I'm like, do you know of this play called Wit? <laughs> do I, I know of this play called Wit? <laughs> I teach Wit. I I know who the, the the main character of reference is because I've written books on him. Yes, I know Wit. Um, but I had no idea that 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 side of it. I was explaining it to you because I was trying to to relate a conversation about uh, this this idea of the scientific being both uh, viewed as and, and criticized as as a source of salvation, um, but also as as being presented as very very cold. It's very dichotomous of of what science is thought to be and what the, the warm and fuzzy stuff is thought to be. And I, I didn't give you an appropriate background on why it bothered me so much. I had to reflect on it for a couple of days. And here's and here's where it came from. Uh, so background that Laurieanne gave, it's a play and there's a movie made that stars Emma Thompson and that's the version I saw. I was with a class in, in a medical school and I happened to be the professor who was assigned to discuss the film afterward alongside a, a primary care doc where there's this woman who has diagnosed with cancer and we watch her journey through it. And she is a professor of poetry and she's, and she studies John Donne and uh, she learns a lot about herself in the process. And you learn what her journey through the medical system is like. And in this process um, you see the, the physicians who are the scientific physicians as terrible human beings who want her as data and as a number, and her life doesn't matter if other lives can be saved. And so, of course, you know, while that argument is is still present in everything else that we're doing and in terms of COVID conversations that we're having right now, but at the time, you're very sympathetic with the main character of, of, of the story. And so these scientific characters are not human to me, to the audience. And what happened afterward was this, this physician got up to talk about what everybody thought about it, and the students would raise their hands. I remember when I was in my biology class, I decided I will never be a cold scientist. That's why I became a physician. And I'm like rolling my eyes because I'm the cold scientist in the class. And it transported me back to when I was in graduate school. Um, I had heard this story about the scientist, the graduate student scientist, who in a lab of one of my mentors had gotten a brain tumor, and she died. 
And the story of her was that she was so heroic because she had to finish the scientific data and, and, and collecting it because other people could learn more, about, learn more about Pavlovian fear conditioning. And I thought to myself at the time inside my conscience, not my science, my conscience said, um, that's not right. You should, that's never right. That doesn't make any sense. And I will never go that way. I, I will not go with that sacrifice. That's not me. And then when I was a graduate student later on, there was a postdoc in my lab who got a brain tumor and he survived. But in the process, the entire lab got together and we took care of him. He had no family here. He was, he did not communicate with his family at all. We did everything with him. We were his family. We turned into the most human unit I've ever seen. And so to be transported forward in this space of the cold scientist when I have had such a different experience and I knew the narrative, I thought that that wit was promoting a really toxic narrative. And so that's why I was so angry with the Lorian. And and that, you know, I mean, and I don't I don't think you're wrong about the characterizations. And I'm not sure that I think of this as a um uh, the best play that's ever written. But of course, for people who do you know, literary theory and who study the work of the poet John Donne from the 17th century, to actually have a play that was that popular that really does hinge on an understanding of that um, was very exciting. So I have a feeling that the, it's the very problem that we think about when we think about you know, how you put together something called medical humanities is that with your background, you saw the presentation of the, of the, of the medical world. And with my background, what I saw was, in some sense, a, a sort of a recap of a, of a moment in literary criticism where, uh, where, where people were analyzed literature scientifically. And I'm, I'm using that, there's no, I'm not even putting sort of inverted commas around the word scientifically, that you could analyze words and punctuation um, in a way that there would be an accurate way of, of learning a poem. And so the, the play itself begins with the young, the, the, a flashback of this particular professor in her own time as a graduate student being absolutely taken to task for using the wrong edition of John Donne's most famous sonnet, the sonnet, uh, one, one of his holy sonnets called uh, that begins death be not proud. Um, and lots of people know it. It's, 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 it's probably his best known, his best known sonnet. And, and she has been using a bad edition, which has the, it has an incorrect punctuation mark at the end. And um, I'm actually going to, I, I, I I'm just going to quickly, re- it's a very short sonnet. I'm going to read it and explain where the, where the kind of, where things come, come, come awry for her. Um, and so this is death. This is sonnet, uh, the Holy Sonnet uh, by John Donne. Uh, death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we were, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Now that's about salvation and eternity, which is the way we have been talking today. Um, 
the part that was corrected in the young graduate student's reading was the final line, and death shall be no more, death thou shalt die. In between those two phrases had been just a comma and an exclamation point at the end of thou shalt die, as if this was a triumphant moment. And what she learns is that death shall be no more should stop, like with a semicolon, and that death thou shalt die should end without triumph, um, because that's not the point of the of the poem. The point of the poem is that it is um, it is the end to it is the quiet end to a turbulent life, and that death in itself is not a triumph. Um, it is, in some sense, um, the continuation of the soul after death that is the triumph. So, at some point in eternity, there will not be death again. Um, and so this actually led to you and I talking a lot about how the scientist, the scientist literary person who felt that there was a right and wrong way to read poetry in the end is confronted with people who are presented to her in this play as people who think there's a right and way, to, right and wrong way to do medicine and, and to fight um, illness. And this, this becomes a kind of agon that she can only escape in a quiet way by dying. Um, but it seems to me that the other side of this is to think about um, what that means about what one might call the distinctions we might make between body and soul or body and mind. Um, uh-huh. It's John Donne. Um, it's quite clear that he, he spends his life being obsessed by illness, obsessed by his body. Um, he's, um, he's, he's quite a physically oriented person. She said delicately thinking about his life before he took holy orders in which he's uh, quite a Jack the lad. Um, and, um, but so his early poetry is quite sexy and very secular, but, but the thing that you, you think, you know, one of the, one of the best and most persuasive theories about the way he thinks about the, the human is that, um, it is, that it is, it is a body with a soul, and soul and mind for him are almost entirely synonymous. And that that means that there are issues with two people becoming united as one, say as in marriage, um, or and or in, in, just, in just like friendly understanding. So a lot of his sermons and a lot of his poetry is about that. But in the end, what he is actually thinking through is how can something so closely related body and soul, body and body and soul or body and mind, what happens then at death when those two things part company? Um, and it seems to me that this is, this will be a, this kind of a fun kind of run up to, to talking to our guest today, uh, because, uh, she works on another 17th century thinker who had a lot to say about perhaps the relationship of body and mind. Oh, Lorianne, I think that's a wonderful segue to introduce our guest, um, who is Claremont Graduate University's provost and uh, executive vice president, Patricia Easton, who is also a trained philosopher who specializes in the history of philosophy and the history of science. And so uh, all this fun stuff going on in the early modern era she was there at this. She was there, not herself, clearly. She was not um, there. She's, she's not. <laughs> she's she's doing it. She looked fabulous, Patricia. Thank um, you. <laughs> for 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 this time when when all of these things were coming uh, uh, to be the the conversation, and and we we faced a major change in thought. So between John Donne and and uh, Rene Descartes, who is her area of expertise, I can't wait to hear the conversation. Welcome, Patricia. 
Welcome. Patricia. Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you, Lorianne. It is such a pleasure to be here. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this to, to actually think about something else that I love. <laughs> so um, just to give everyone a little background, uh, your area of expertise is Cartesian, Rene Descartes. Uh, what was so, what is known most about Descartes and what do we attribute to be uh, so special about him? Well, I think the thing that I hear the most in sort of the public sphere about Descartes is, I think, therefore I am, and all the variations therein, right? I shop, therefore I am. I eat, therefore I am. And uh, so I think- I shop through in place, therefore I am. (laughs) There you go. So what I think most people think about when they think about Descartes is- that he was a dualist. Uh, he did make a, a, a major distinction between mind and body. And he's known for meditation, right? His meditations, his philosophical meditations are also probably, that's probably the text that most people know about the most, uh, where he declares that there's one thing I'm certain about. It is that I exist so long as I am thinking. Now, the other thing that we know about Descartes is that he is the, often called um, sort of the, the father of modern science. Uh, so that's the other side of Descartes that the scientists and mathematicians uh, tend to focus on the most. And so they don't look at the meditations. They look at his discourse on method. They look at the scientific works that he wrote on meteors, on the optics, on uh, and on geometry. So there's kind of, again, a split. Everything about Descartes is dualistic. Um, so the scientists uh, look at him for one thing and the uh, philosophers and, and popular, um, the popular culture looks at him as a dualist. Patricia, one more thing just um, about his own time. Um, a little bit of, of the, the, a little bit of contextualization in the seventeenth century. Um, what kinds of what what kind of uh, lives and situations did he observe? I mean, did he have much much um, uh, relation? You know, did he live through plagues? Did he have? Are there ways that we can think about how he might have developed these ways of thinking and approaching the world? Yes, and I can't. That's a great background question because, uh, especially COVID nineteen, has got me thinking more about Descartes. You know, uh, and what he must have been, what he must have lived through. I mean, he lived in a time of pestilence and war, and and yet, and yet the emergence of science and political freedom and all the things that were happening in the same century. It must have been extraordinary uh, to live during his day. Uh, he was he was born to a father who was a doctor a medical doctor, and his mother died in childbirth with him. And so he was raised by his grandparents. Um, And so he enjoyed a relatively, uh, uh, you know, uh, good life. He wasn't poor, Um, but he lived in a very difficult time. And he was born, we think, with tuberculosis. And so he suffered uh, uh, poor health throughout his life, died of pneumonia when he was 54, Uh, So, you know, his search after truth and certainty in a time of great uncertainty, I have a special appreciation for now. And I I really, I was thinking because, you know, we were just talking about about John Donne, another 17th century thinker, in many ways, you know, 
so very different than than Rene Descartes. But to think about what it would be like to live at a time where a kind of certainty that we think we have, and I think that might be quite mythical as our experience in the last few weeks has shown, but that 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 those ideas of certainty are are hard won if 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 one is searching for them. And part of that is is actually is in some sense it is it is actually inscribed upon the body. Um, John Donne himself was 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 a man who was sickly, and even when he wasn't sick, he thought a lot about being sick. He was a bit of a you know we probably call him a hypochondriac these days, and he mm-hmm. it shaped every way that he thought about how his body worked in relation to other people's bodies, um, how his body would work as it would close down for its inevitable death, um, at a time where people didn't feel like death was something that you could stave off. That it was something that could often come on suddenly, or I'm thinking about someone who is actually born ill, but to be born with tuberculosis, or to, to have that as a young child, and to think about that as as with every breath um, being so so hard, you know, so hard to come by, um, to spend that time in those conditions, in that physical state, trying to puzzle out what it means to have autonomy or what it means to think as you as you describe or, or what it means i mean and then to put out all this work i mean you just named like 14 <laughs> different fields of study that he has actually contributed to uh, that's extraordinary yeah i think you know where john dunn may have turned to poetry to give expression to that that sense of the world uh descartes turned to what we call science i mean we didn't they didn't have the term science then they Scantia was really the the idea that you could have knowledge that was certain rather ju- rather than just empirical, mm-hmm. and so uh, Scantia, the the whole frame of science then was to yes you you had to have observation you had to have empirical facts backing up your your science, uh, but the goal in science then was was to to reach certainty. And now, of course, there were debates in England, uh, right, with the Lockean and other <laughs> notions of, of science, which was more probabilistic, and certainly Newton develops that. But, but, but the notion that there was even a hypothetical deduct- deductive notion around science was shared. And so that, that there was going to be laws that, that the, the observations were wrapped around in some way that we could really understand if we really just, just studied the world enough. And so Descartes, early in his career, yes, he was a mathematician. He wrote, um, he wrote a number of uh, treatises that he didn't even publish. One in music, uh, uh, early geometry, uh, one um, uh, an early logic that he he never published, and yet in the by so by the 1630s though he's really involved in studying the book of the world. And, uh, and by this time, he's a young, what, he's 30, 34 years old at this point. In other words, middle-aged in the 17th century. Middle-aged, that's right. And so he was growing plants, and he was doing dissections of animals, and he was trying to understand the body machine, because that was how we were going to really unlock the laws of, of health and disease and, and death. And, and just to interject here really quickly... When I used to teach uh, neuro in medical school, uh, I would show the pictures that Descartes had uh, with with of like an animal that looked like its insides made of gears and, and a clock. The idea of the automata is is the model system that we need to do to be able to dissect in biology and figure out in physiology 
how a system actually works like a car or like a watch or like whatever it is. The, the automata uh, was, is still how a lot of medical education and the basic sciences are, is, is treated and is taught. So it, it, it's something that when I, when I first met you, Patricia, I, I thought was such a cool point of, of convergence for the two of us, because uh, here you study the person that I was using to, to uh, explain away the, the stuff I was interested in. But, but, uh, I was never quite sure the context of it. So did he really think that we were just machines? He really believed the body was a machine, yes. It was, it was a metaphor, but it was more than a metaphor for him. He really believed that, for example, um, you know, Harvey had come out with, uh, in, the, in 1630 with a treatise on the, on the heart and really, really argued that blood circulated through the body and that the heart was a pump. And Descartes said, no. It's mechanical. Um, it's it's more mechanical than that, and so he can, so at least a pump is mechanical, right? But then he says, no, it's this other kind of machine, and so uh, I really I, I really think he meant that we would be able to unlock the secrets of the body if we understood how man-made machines work. That eventually we would understand how God's machine worked. So where does the concept of, what is Descartes' concept of the soul? Ah, yes. Well, this is a controversial topic. And so my view on this may not be in the majority, but I'm very convinced that it's true. That's what this podcast uh, is all about. <laughs> Let's hear it. This is, uh, this, you know, Descartes the dualist. This goes against the grain of Descartes the dualist. And certainly I, I do grant that he is in metaphysics, right, in trying to understand what it is humans are in their essence. He would say we are thinking things and in our bodies are extended things. And so our bodies are automata, but our minds are thinking things. The soul is that thing in between. It's where the mind interacts with the body and there is a union of mind and body in the human that, that he calls, he refers to that as the soul. So there's a kind of operational dependence between what he calls the rational mind and the mechanical body. That is, he could actually have sat down and had a, a you know, a cup of coffee with John Donne. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, well, that's actually- Dunn's approach, yeah. Well, Dunn believed that the that the body and soul were, you know, sort of inseparable during life. That's why he was yes. so obsessed with death, because he realized that that would be a parting. And he thinks, you know, and I think in a lot of his language of, of partings of, you know, from from the very beginning when he's writing, you know, sexy love poetry till the end, you know, when one says goodbye, what happens? Um, and as as he gets older and um, more and more caught up with the need to be um, actually explaining life and death to people who are also worried about things like salvation, um, he himself is working out his salvation or his place in that by 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 examining and interrogating where where this the soul where his soul will go because it will inevitably it will have to leave the body behind, um, and so but he uses mind. The, the word mind often in places where I would expect to see soul and, and vice versa. So, so it's pretty interchangeable for him, but I think we, you know, we sometimes make a mistake with early moderns thinking that, that they think in black and white ways that we don't think. Right. And so, and they're not actually obligated to us to always clarify their language, but 
you know, I've been in classes where we've talked about um, the, you know, the very different, the very thing that makes Dunn different than, say, Descartes. But, but you're right, Patricia. That that is a controversial and interesting theory, and it makes these two guys sort of, you know, they 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 probably hang out together at the party. Yeah, and you know, I love Lorianne that you've uh, raised the issue of death because Descartes has a very clear theory on this, and and in, I find it really fascinating. Um, and people don't pay attention to it. So um, the last book that Descartes wrote before he died of pneumonia in Sweden uh, is called The Passions of the Soul, a book that nobody pays much attention to, uh, and I think it's his greatest work. And in book one of The Passions of the Soul, Descartes makes a comparison of the human body to a watch. And he says, you know, what a watch tells time, right? So when it stops telling time, when the wheels stop working, it it's no longer a watch, right? And so he, we get to Article 6, where Descartes defines death. And he says that death happens when the body stops functioning. So there's no parting. I mean, there's no parting of that, like the soul... The, the soul disappears because the, the watch has stopped, its wheels have stopped turning. Now, it's, it's controversial, of course, as to, well, then what happens to the soul, uh, the, the soul in the, the mind, the immortal mind, and uh, Descartes did believe in immortality. And so I, I do have a whole complicated uh, explanation here. But what happens in, when, when humans cease to exist it's that their mind and body no, are no longer united by the soul because the body stops functioning. So the mind, the, that thing that is uh, unextended, right, it's eternal, but it's, it's no longer registering. You know, when Descartes died, it's, he, he, he died with his body. Um, and his mind may rejoin, you know, the eternal mind, but it's no longer Descartes. And where does the soul go in all of this? This is really interesting. The soul needs both the mind and the body to be operating, right? And so once the body stops functioning, there is no more soul. Right. It is like the glue that keeps them together. And and so this would yeah. actually run against ideas of the soul being the thing which is universal and immortal. Um, in, some, in some ways, it sounds to me like... Descartes has not so much, if I understand you correctly, he has not ensouled the mind, you know, in the sense of making the mind over into a soul, it's released. And the soul goes on to do yeah. work in other, in other bodies that need their minds connected to, you know, to, to, to this physical machine. Um, I'm working so hard here, you know, as a person who, 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 who loves my car, but I, I can't come to together i can't pull together a theory of the mind the soul and the machine that will pull that 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 actually makes any sense so i'm going to leave that alone but i think um that would be not only would my john dunn and your rene descartes be hanging out at the party they might be poking each other in the chest a little bit although i'm not sure either one of them needed to be doing that because neither one of them had really strong lungs but they might be they <laughs> might be a little bit heatedly arguing at this point did that color Patricia Descartes' view of salvation? Did he have a view of salvation? He uh, stayed out of theological uh, issues. And so in his correspondence, he simply says, yeah, like whatever the doctrine of the church is, that's, that's right. 
Oh, smart man. Smart man in the 14th century. Okay, that's why we know he was a genius. Um, you know, stay yeah. out of it. Yeah. Actually, you know, Dun, he and Dunn would have agreed on that too. We never really have quite ever known, you know, Dunn ended his life. And, and actually the, mo- the most famous part of his life was that he was a, was a, was a, preacher. I mean, he was the great, the great, you know, Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, a kind of late in life career, which his early career would not have prepared anybody for because it was pretty, it was often considered to be slightly dissolute. Um, but you, and he was also, he was raised in a Catholic family and this is a Protestant country. So the, you know, mm-hmm. questions about whether he was Catholic or Protestant remain and, you know, and, and feed mm-hmm. many, many, many monographs. But what is yes. particularly interesting about his sort of view on doctrine is that, you know, once you become a Church of England minister, then this salvation is within the church. But basically the institution, it's a, it's a very formal kind of position and seems to have um, not a tangential, but a looser relationship to where one might be individually with this case of salvation. Um, you know, he seems to be recognizing that you have a lot of people sitting in a church, all of whom have to be there in order to be saved, but not all of whom in there will be saved. And, it, you, you know, and so, um, so he leaves the, he leaves the hair splitting of that sort, mm-hmm. um, I think to, with reference to what, whatever the official doctrine is, um, and, um, goes on to, you know, proceeds to do another kind of interesting kind of what one might call soul and body splitting. Right. Um, right. That is so. I mean, I think of the 17th century as being as being the you know the particularly great time for this kind of thinking to emerge, right? You've just finished up one one great century of religious war, the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation, and you have at that point people have new ideas of autonomy, new ideas of what what will what the human will may or may not be able to accomplish. Um, there's a lot of controversy on the ground. You finally learned that people can feel. People can feel very differently than you on matters of religion, and nobody quite knows what's going to happen when you die. At this point, there's no one certain answer, and there's no one certain answer about how long you're going to live because there's so many dangerous things abroad between those things that can make people sick and those people, those things which can can set people at war with each other, um, which leads to this kind of yearning towards the what we might think of as a more modern way of thinking about the world, the scientific way, for example, um, but with a foot still in the medieval in certain ways about the importance of faith and, and the soul. This is why I love these conversations, because uh, it brings up the notion when you're, when you're looking at humanities and you're looking at sciences, um, you see what's both similar and different at the same time. And it reminds me of the Reed lecture that C.P. Snow gave about the, the two different cultures, that, that mm. uh, the humanities are always looking towards the past and the sciences are always looking toward the future. And what I think is more true is that both are looking to inform the present. And when we look at both and we don't forget the other, that's when we're really the most uh, powerful. And I want to try this. I want to I experiment with both of you and try placing... Dunn and Descartes into the present and what they would be thinking, for instance, if they walked into an ICU and saw a human being on a ventilator. How, how would Descartes interpret that? How would John Dunn interpret that? Oh, Patricia, please go first. Oh, okay. After you. Descartes, <laughs> Descartes would raise his hands in celebration that a machine was going to help save uh, humanity. Um, Remember, for a 17th century thinker like Descartes, the machine 
thinking about the body as a machine was liberating. It wasn't alienating. It was, it was opening up the world to be understood. And so if he saw an ICU, you know, walked into a, to a hosp, a modern hospital with, with machines working uh, to, to promote human health, he would be celebrating that. He would say, this, this is what I envisioned for the future. Wow. And, and you know, the, the, the ventilator is, is, it's so like, it is so machine. <laughs> it's yeah. so yeah. essential machine. It's, it's changing the, the pressure inside of your body so that it can force the lungs to respond and you can inhale and exhale. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think where we'd get, where I think poor John Dunn might get a bit tripped up. Um, if he were observing this and um, he would be observing and, and let's, let's take it one further. Let's say it's not a person you know, who's actually particularly responsive on that ventilator. What he would see would be the work of a machine making the body stay alive. And I think given his training as a, as a clergyman and given in some sense, I think his temperament, which was always to actually anticipate death, right? This is a man who famously posed for a picture in his own shroud you know, I mean, had his picture done, made, like painted, as if he were in a shroud already. So he was, you know, thinking on death, which is, I think, one of the jobs of the of the theologian, the early modern theologian. Um, I think he would be, he would think what he was seeing was a a dead person being being you know being forced to remain alive. Um, he, as I said about the, uh, the sort of the end of that great holy sonnet. Um, if you use the punctuation carefully, um, as is pointed out both in the play and by people who teach it, um, the end is not triumphant. It actually ends on the last breath. Um, this is something Andy might remember from that play that that was was, was so you know annoying to him was that when she's being you know, sort of sort of talked to very sternly by her own professor, says you don't use a, you don't use an edition of the play that has a exclamation point at the end there's nothing it is because poetry is is an act of breath that last is just the sigh that goes right so the one thing that i i saw you know john dunn struggled with life not with death um and i think he'd be very confused not simply because he didn't understand it or didn't want to you know didn't wouldn't be wanting to is a very intellectually curious man to see a body kept alive might to him be um, both confusing and possibly even blasphemous. So they just parted ways at the party. They just parted <laughs> ways at the party. Like the party ends at the ICU door for them. So, so now, now we're going to go into that space a little more because we're getting into the liminal space between life and death and what humans can do, what kind of agency we have to control that. What if you're also in a situation of somebody who's really not responding to any of this? So Descartes or Dunn. Are, are viewing, they're, they're also in an ICU. They've got a patient who's being non-responsive. Their vitals are going down. It looks like they're getting multiple organ failure. And all the conventional treatments that are allowed in the hospital, uh, based on legal reasons, based on what's available right now, um, aren't working. And they have this clause that they can try something experimental like hydrochloroquine or something else that might cause more damage or it might actually work. Um, to this concept of compassionate use, nothing else is working. We're going to do this long shot of an attempt to give you something, even possibly remdesivir. Uh, What would each think regarding whose choice that should be? If that's the choice of a physician, if that's the choice of a family, or if that's the choice of the person that's in that space? Well, 
Okay. I don't know. I'm trying to think if John Dunn has <laughs> left a script for us, but I think he might have. Remember, he has, I think the where you start with compassion, of course, you know, in the same way that, you know, I think therefore I am is, you know, what people know, what some people know of Descartes first and foremost. Um, of course, with Dunn's, it is um, no man is an island entire unto himself. And the other, you know, is every man's death diminishes me because I am part of mankind. So I think that he might think about the 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 greater good. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna complicate your your, your question just a little bit. Um, good. What's the greater good if 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 every man's you know if it you know every man's death diminishes me because I'm part of mankind? I think I might have just said that wrong the first time around. Every man's death diminishes me because I'm part of mankind. Um, then he'd have to think about he'd be thinking about. Is this, for example, is experimental use going to help other people? Um, there is no such thing as the individual, um, you know, in some ways, there's no way to be an individual cut off from others. Okay. So that's my idea. Yeah. Okay, I like it. I like it. I don't know if there's a script for Descartes either, but my, I can tell you a bit of a historical answer uh, that Great. came right after Descartes. But before I get to that, I think Descartes, was very much an experimentalist and so would have experimented himself, but he was also an individualist. And I don't think he would have made that decision for anyone else. Um, just, uh, again, in his letters to Elizabeth, you know, she's complaining about headaches and this and that, and that there's no, the doctors can't help her. And so he says to her, uh, well, if the body isn't responding, why don't we read a book together? And they would read a philosophical book together in their in their correspondence, right? Thinking that then maybe the soul, like the the soul, could be awakened through the ideas, and that because he believed that what the mind contributed was ideas, what the body contributed was motion, and that life or you know motivation or action was propelled by both of those things working together. And so, if you couldn't get the body to work correctly, the mind could have indirect impact on that. So Descartes was very much in that space and kind of inspired in his successors a, a sense of experimentalism, uh, which is kind of goes against our view of what Descartes is and what he meant. In his day, short, sorry, shortly after his death, I have to tell you that there, was a, there were some experiments on blood transfusion. And it came out of Descartes' theory of the body. And they use prisoners and they use people in the asylums uh, as their testing um, agents uh, for those. And um, I mean, Descartes never did that, but certainly some of his successors did did go there. So, so okay, two things, Patricia. Uh, the first is, are you, or actually, the most important thing that I'm going to harp on here. So are you saying that Descartes said that if you treat the mind, you could be treating the body? Yes, Okay, and so this this idea that there there was a book written called Descartes' Error by uh, Antonio Damasio that specifically says that what got Descartes got wrong is that there is no mind body connection that they're two separate things. Um, but here I'm going to introduce to you a theory of emotion that if you treat the mind, then you're actually treating the body was actually said uh, four centuries earlier. Absolutely. And, and Damasio is just wrong. He never read the passions of the soul. Descartes even says, I think it takes place. I think the union of mind and body takes place in the pineal gland. He and that led to, that. 
And that led to a whole bunch of research say, oh, it's a singular, uh, you know, anatomical. No, it's not. And so his own, you know, his own successors said, no, it's not the pineal gland. It must be somewhere else. Right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Which ironically, the pineal gland is one of a couple of spots in the brain where you don't have a bilateral presentation. So there's no dualism in it. It's actually one of these unified areas. But it also turns out that the pineal gland is actually not made of nervous tissue, which a lot of people don't know. So it's not really brain. Are you um, kidding me? All my life, that's what I've thought. <laughs> okay. A childhood dream has just been shattered. Yeah. <laughs> all this time, you were looking to your pineal gland and, and hoped that it was going to be a better tomorrow. You know, there's, there's uh, allegedly, uh, we have um, Descartes' uh, pineal gland somewhere, but uh, I've never actually seen it. So uh, it was it's saved. It's very small, whatever, wherever it is. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I often would lose them when I was doing dissection. Uh, the pineal gland gets torn off pretty easily. Do, what, do, do they know functionally what it does? Yeah, it's your third eye. It is, it's the, it's the third ah. eye chakra. In, in animals, it's totally interesting. In birds and in reptiles, it, it actually is directly photoreceptive just as your eye is. Uh, oh. And your skull over it is quite thin. And so it receives light. Uh, in humans, it does not. It's buried. Your skull is much thicker. And so uh, what, what it normally does in, in birds and reptiles is in the presence of, of light, it stops the pineal from working. And in darkness, it allows the secretion of melatonin, which is your, it's the hormone that signals to your body it's nighttime. And everything you're supposed to do at nighttime is then triggered by that. Uh, in humans, we still activate our pineal gland, but it's through a much more convoluted mechanism because our direct sunlight option got completely hidden by our thick skulls, literally, and a bunch of other neural circuitry in it. But it, it, is, it is really like your, it is, it is the, the hormone that your body uses to tell you it's time to go to sleep. You realize that right now there's been a ton of attention played one more time on I mean, melatonin because people now can't sleep. So there's been yeah. you know, like major articles on the proper use of melatonin for people all the time. I suppose like it's melatonin is not just for traveling anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, but 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 each but each of these characters. So so you Dunn and Descartes, they bring in a complexity to it, uh, and and it's clear that you have multiple people from a particular era where there were a lot of of, of integrated ideas or an attempt at integrating ideas, uh, some of which, especially around like you know Descartes' era, like not not. The humanist argument of nothing's new under the sun. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from um, about our modern space from from the early modern space. I think they both illustrate that really, really nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear somebody like, "Yay, early modern!" Yeah, Descartes. I started out as a you know 20th century Descartes wrong about everything. Uh, he's my adversary to reading him as a graduate student and realizing how much more there was to understand and that ideas are not disembodied. They take place in space and time. And Descartes was a man, right? And, uh, and so reading with much more of an open mind about what he, I mean, I still totally disagree with his views on, on what animals are. He thinks they're just automata um, and they don't, they don't sense but that was because he had a very specific definition of what the rational mind is. And I disagree with him on that too. But he really did believe that there was a soul that was that union of mind and body in the case of humans. And, and that is something that we often really overlook in, in his thinking. 
Well, I learned a lot from from that, um, and I'm excited about thinking about a course in the future, Patricia, Descartes <laughs> and Dunn, together again. Um, who knew? I think, who knew? I think, but I think the thing about the early modern period, which is so like this, you know, this this period that we call between the the modern and the medieval era, is that it is a it is a um, a kind of a. It, I always think of it as as a, as a as a as a era formed by the like the force of two great sort of tectonic plates, right? Sort of shoving against each other, which is like this this yearning towards um, uh, towards the modern. This this notion of of, uh, of some sense, you know, the human freedom to uh, to explore and to and to experiment um and but with also you know that that sense of the past weighing so much on those minds you know how do you move from science you know how do you move towards science you know carrying what one might call either the burden or the glory of faith is is a very is a difficult problem we that we still haven't solved but i think one of the things that um the period would you know has to offer in terms of thinking about today because um, because I, you know, one of the things that I, I very much used to resist was thinking that I had to explain anything that I worked on in the 16th and 17th century as relevant to today. I really didn't like those kinds of conversations. I like them a lot more now. Um, I think they, they, they work well, you know, when, when you want, when you want ideas to have purchase in, in the, in the, in the world outside the academy. Um, but also because it allows us to, to be taught by people that we tend sometimes to condescend to, like they didn't understand the pineal gland back then, or they didn't, you know, like, you, you know, as if, as if, you know, what people will think of us in 500 years is, is going to be, you know, wow, they were so, they were so smart and we've learned nothing since. But I think the early moderns lived in a world they, that they understood they could not control. Maybe, maybe the kings did not, but I mean, the, the people who I study, both, you know, those who, th- who think and those who create, um, work in a world that they know is not certain and that they can't pin down. And one of the things that the current situation has actually exposed for us is how hard it is to operate this way, not pinning things down yet. Science is working on it. Um, you know, we can't say we know where we're going to be, say, a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. That's something that a person from the 17th century would say without hesitation and not feel like they were letting down the side. That doesn't mean they didn't plan. That doesn't mean they didn't have concepts of the future. It just meant that day to day, um, those certainties uh, could not be had. And it would be good to think about that way of working in the world right now. I couldn't agree with you more, Laurieann. And I don't know if Descartes would agree. Patricia, would Descartes agree with this one? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and I, I, I have to say, I am in absolute awe. Like, if you think about this moment in history, in our history, I'm in awe that someone like Dunn or Descartes could sit at their, at their study table and write something like a beautiful poem or the discourse on method. I mean, to work under those conditions and and keep your focus and your optimism, I I got to give it to them. I got to give them kudos. Oh man! Well, yes, because they actually, you know, why would you write if you thought there was nothing to come, right? So it's yep. not a nihilist way of thinking about things, but but there's a sense of human that that's like a that there's a sense of human frailty that goes hand in hand with this idea of creation. 
right? This idea of sitting down at your desk and saying, I'm, I'm going to think about optics. I'm going to write a yeah. sermon about death. I'm going to actually, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. Um, they also, you know, they also didn't have email to stop them from getting all the work done. <laughs> or Zoom, or Zoom. My, my hope is that we do see on the other side of this, this huge boom in, in human creativity uh, that comes from this that might actually have been predicted by these other eras of, of as you said, pestilence and famine and plague and, mm-hmm. and, and everything else and war that was going on. This, this might be another one of our major moments in history that, that really pivots us for the better. Um, can I thank you, Patricia, for joining us today? I know you're extremely busy with every mm-hmm. single thing that you have to tend to um, and in the city of Claremont, even though you're, you're not sitting there right now. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Patricia. We really do need to do that course someday. We really do. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. It was a lot of fun. And, and Laurieanne, it's, it's another week. And it is another week. We've done another... Another cool conversation where we just see so many neat people, part of our community at CGU, who uh, are really shedding light on the complicated, complex, beautiful and terrible and challenging and wonderful situation of living in this era of of social or physical isolation. So Absolutely. It really takes a village not to get to live in the village right now. That's right. And, And we're doing it. Yeah, we are. It's really, as as always, Andy, um, I can't wait to talk to you next week. This has been terrific. Thank you very much. We don't really, I'm trying to think, um, this was so exhilarating that um, my notion of what the challenge would be, you know, the, 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 the traditional um, sharing air podcast challenge, I think it would be to uh, go think about, go, go read something about death that, that you don't think of, that you don't immediately approach as 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 maybe not gloomy or as 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 nihilistic or you know but death as as opportunity um i think that that's actually uh not as strange as it sounds i will have to think long and hard about that one Lorianne. but all right you're taking the challenge uh, yeah i'm taking the challenge so you heard it here first folks i will be thinking about death as an opportunity and reporting back to you next week with that i am going to send us out Uh, Thank you again for joining us on Sharing Air, where we share stories that bring us together in these times of distance and transformation. Bye now.